90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, I'm cold. Oh, yeah, I know. It's been <laughs> unseasonably cold, it seems like, here. Uh, yeah, I think we're really close to tying, and I love this, only meteorologists appreciate this stuff, close to tying our record low high temperature <laughs> for today. We broke ours, uh, let's see, about five days ago, six days Ooh. ago when this airs. Uh, we were 36 in the morning. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's that's laughable. I mean, we're you know in the sixties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thirty six, huh? Well, that's, yeah, uh, hmm. it, we've actually had some some kind of wild weather, and this relates to what we're going to talk about today. So, but I want to tell this story of every year we have this very large book sale here. I think I talked about it last year when it occurred. <sighs> yeah, and... I don't like to listen because <laughs> you know rage, jealousy. But go ahead. Yeah, so. If, you should look on Twitter. There are pictures of how massive this thing is. Well, Sunday afternoon, we went back to go through the books again, see if there's anything we missed the first time, and there's fewer people there. Um, so we go back, and as we're pulling up, my wife said, what is that? And there was a, a column of precipitation coming across a field. And I took a picture of it. If I had said this picture was in Oklahoma in springtime, you would swear it's a tornado from the picture. Oh, my gosh. Uh, it was a very localized column of heavy precipitation and some wind. And when it hit us, there was actually mixed in snow and sleet. Are you kidding? In May. <laughs> so you, like, core punched an ice NATO? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> That's uh, <laughs> what it would seem. I mean... It oh was it was a God. really bizarre storm. It was just kind of this quasi-linear convective system of junk. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And believe it or not, there was actually a really weak, like, 20-knot gate-to-gate couplet. Oh, uh, not bad. Yeah, it was just this really bizarre event. Um, <laughs> and it made going to the book sale a little bit more interesting. <laughs> And then I looked at the schedule because we've actually grown up as a podcast and started making a schedule more than two weeks out. And it tied in so perfectly to today's topic. It was amazing. <laughs> um, do you think maybe there's some weird, you know, sci-fi wormhole that's connecting our schedule to the actual events? Cause I'm well, in the make... next week we need to talk about tornadoes. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say next week we need to cancel that because I don't want, <laughs> I don't want tornadoes to happen. <laughs> My my mindset um, as I become you know more adult definitely changed from heck yeah let's go chase some tornadoes to I have a house and you know house payments and stuff so no more Great. tornadoes. <laughs> well, but you've had a lot of rain and precipitation too, right? Yeah, we sure have. Um, we're actually still. I think the last time I looked which, because I'm a nerd, was not very long ago. Um, we're still about 0.5 inches down for the year, which is surprising because it seems like we've had a whole lot of rain, but we've had chances every... We had a little system come through last night um, and then some tornadoes out in western Oklahoma a day ago, and we've got a 40% chance tonight. And like I said, our temperatures are in the 60s. It's uh, it's really weird, really weird yeah. weather here. Huh. Yeah. Well, you talked about 
where you were in relation to where you normally are during the year, and that involves measuring the amount of precipitation that comes down. And now winter precipitation is a totally different story that we don't want to get into because there are giant arguments about that, and it's not winter anymore. (laughs) Yes, it's very hard. (laughs) Yes. Well, apparently it's winter in Pennsylvania. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But rain is, well, rain and hail, actually, uh, are a little bit easier. And so I thought it'd be fun to talk about ways to measure precipitation since we're coming into heavy rain season in a lot of places. And as you would imagine, it goes way back and then comes up to very modern and cutting edge instruments. Um, I thought I was really excited about this too until I saw, you know, your notes for this. And I would have just called them rain gauges, but there's a whole host of other names that I didn't even know. And it made me feel like less of a meteorologist. (laughs) Just this first sentence about them. (laughs) So I, I actually had to look these up. That makes me feel better. (laughs) I didn't know them off the top of my head, but apparently rain gauges can also be called odometers, pluviometers, or ombrometers. (laughs) And I would, I have to say ombrometer is my favorite. Uh, Yeah, that's super great. Um, I will say I tried to look those up in this uh, meteorological measurement systems textbook that I have, and none of those are in there. I've never heard a working meteorologist use any of them. So my guess is that they referred to a very specific configuration of an instrument in days of old, and we've since gone away from that. Yes, yes. Um, I would like to, I think we should start renaming things, these crazy things, because ombrometer is super cool. Yeah, and all meteorological instruments have to be slightly difficult to say, like anemometer. (laughs) And then there has to be 12 modifiers in in front of that, which we're going to have a lot of modifiers in front of all the different rain gauges we're going to talk about today as well. Oh, yeah, we'll definitely get there. But I think first it's important to say why we should be that concerned about measuring the amount of rain and doing it precisely. Well, I mean, it all comes down to the fact that we like to eat, right? Yeah, I mean, other than keeping records, which is all great, we need to know what areas could be climatically sustainable for farming of different crops over some kind of long-term average. Right, and you definitely want to have an exact measure of the rain because if you're doing it incorrectly, you're not using the best instrument, that climatic average is going to be really far off the more you average in these incorrect measurements. So it's actually really important to get the best instrument for that area that works to accurately measure the rain. Yeah. Well, and one of my favorite applications, actually, is by doing a lot of measurements of river flow speeds and river heights, uh, they're actually getting pretty good at using rain amounts to predict flood stages of rivers and help get uh, more advanced warning out to those that could be in affected areas. Yeah, and I mean, we're, we're talking not minutes. We're talking hours and sometimes, you know, half a day or a day or so in advance. So that's actually quite impressive and helps, you know, not only with loss of life, but also with loss of property too. Yeah, and the difference between a half an inch and three quarters of an inch of rain may not sound like much, but it could be massive when you plug it into a flood model in a large catchment. Right, it sure is. So... When did we start doing rain measurement with any kind of accuracy? Well, so there was a lot of attempts before uh, in the very early days, but like everything back in the 1300s, 1200s, it's just there's no standard of measurement. 
So I didn't count any of that because th- there's no standard. It's kind of pointless. They did crazy things like units of measure for one village were based on the length of some steel bar that was embedded in concrete in that village. And it would be different in different villages and you know, all these crazy things. <laughs> so back to the uh, candle calibration problems that we've had before. Yeah, back to that. So the first systematic measurements actually started in 1441 in Korea. That is much earlier than I thought. Yeah, and they actually measured in a unit called a poon, uh, which is probably not how you say that. (laughs) But it's approximately 0.12 inches is one poon. Okay. And so how did they do it? Just like a rain gauge like in your garden or... It's, yeah, it's something more like what you would think of just a a vessel. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So a very early graduated cylinder, if you will. Excellent. Uh, And then in 1662, uh, actually Wren and Hook designed the first tipping bucket rain gauge uh, with, you know, the funnel design. And this is something that we still use today, but now they're electronic and then they obviously weren't. Yes. Um, this is my favorite, mostly because I have one, but also because I'm really big on sort of, especially when I teach, talking about trying to understand all the errors, because once you've eliminated that, you know you're getting a good measurement, and the errors associated with tipping buckets are just great, which we will get to in a little bit. (laughs) Yes. But we'll get into more of how these different types of gauges work in just a second. But I want to say I think we should focus on the actual process of measuring the rain, uh, because a lot of the a lot of the advances after this design were really advances in regular recording and distribution of recording stations around countries so that you could compare data and systematically uh, collect it and store it. And that's not really an improvement in measuring the rain. That's just an improvement in how we recorded it. Right, exactly. We're talking about the actual physical instruments. So down and dirty, what's holding your water? How much of it came out of the sky? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, most, everybody probably has some kind of graduated cylinder out in, you know, their back garden fence or something. Yeah. That uh, unfortunately is not even close to accurate for most, (laughs) (laughs) most purposes. I will, yeah, most people probably don't have a tipping bucket rain gauge on the roof like we do. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But... There are various systems, some of which are automatic, that we'll talk about. And it's fun to go back and realize that automatic doesn't mean electronic like it does now. Automatic could mean, (laughs) honest to goodness, rotating drum, pin on paper, mechanical computer. Uh, Yeah, we don't think much about those anymore. Um. (laughs) No, not at all. That's for sure. But we do still have to talk a little bit about sort of what a standard rain gauge is right um just like you said it's not these things that have a little plastic frog holding a fake graduated cylinder in your garden yeah and they're still tapered even though the the graduations are evenly spaced not not tapered uh, yes yeah yeah not those those are not good so painful Yeah, so if, if you have one of those, it's an interesting experiment to just hold it under your sink, turn the tap on, and watch how it fills over time at a constant <laughs> rain rate from your tap, and you'll see why they're awful. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Super cute, though. <laughs> yeah, but there is a, a standard 
rain gauge that's based on the same principle, though, but it's one that we can actually use for scientific measurement, and they're good to about uh, a hundredth of an inch resolution, which is pretty pretty good. Uh, yeah, exactly. Taking into effect all those errors, that's uh, that's pretty close, probably, to getting what the real rainfall is. Yeah, and so the way this works is it's actually a funnel that empties into a graduated cylinder, but the funnel uh, sits on the top of this larger container that's about 20 centimeters in diameter, and the cylinder sits in that. So the idea is it rains, the funnel collects water from this slightly larger area to average over, it drops down into the cylinder, which is calibrated for that collection area, and then if it rains a lot, the cylinder overflows, but that larger container still catches the overflow. So when you go out to do your reading, you take a larger graduated cylinder with you and dump the container into it if need be. Gotcha. So you're collecting all of the rain, none of it's splashing out, less likely that there are little animals in there. Right. Um, gotcha. I, I don't, you, generally you would go read these often enough that's not going to be a concern uh, if there's evaporation. But let's say you had a really small shower in the summertime in Texas or something where it's very hot. Uh, <laughs> I could see evaporation being a concern in this setup. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess that is pretty true. Then you'd have to worry about what it's made out of because that would enhance it or not. So. Yeah, I mean, but this is the classic way to do rain measurement. It's the way it's been done systematically for... Uh, I would say that the Weather Service has done it systematically anyway for their existence. Yes, yep. Mm -hmm. Right. But then... There are a lot of other, and we're going to touch, let's see, what do we have here? Maybe four or five different types of rain gauges. And this is not an exhaustive list. Not even close. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so in the 1920s, this is the only use I found of the word pluviometer, <laughs> uh, which makes me think it's specific to certain instruments. Mm -hmm. uh, so it actually measures the intensity of rainfall, not the amount of rainfall. But okay. This should trigger bells in your calculus brain, right? Uh, yeah, because how? <laughs> well, because if you sum up the intensity of rainfall over time, then you actually get the amount of rainfall. Mm -hmm. And we have so algorithms you, that do this now. We have algorithms that do this, or then you could literally compute the area under the curve on the paper. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. So the idea is as rain falls it fills a tank in this instrument. And there's a buoy that's floating in this instrument, or a float, that as the tank fills up, the buoy floats up and opens the drain at the bottom of the tank more so that more water drains out of the tank. Then that excess water draining out of the tank will be greater than the rate of rain coming in. So the water level will go down, the buoy will go down and close the valve some. So it's it's a feedback system. The buoy is trying to maintain a constant level of water in the tank. Okay. And this is being recorded, right? So how, how much it opens up, essentially? Exactly. So okay. you're actually doing this feedback system to try to match the outflow rate to the inflow rate of the rain. Okay. And I, I think this is actually pretty genius. Uh <laughs> Because for, for low rain rates, it could be problematic. Right. Yeah, because you just don't have enough to create that feedback yeah. loop anyway. So before but, it evaporates or something. Yeah, but when you're in heavy rain, this 
could very conceivably do a better job than most of the other methods we're going to talk about. Right, exactly, because those err on the side of failing when you have a heavy rainfall. Uh, this is really interesting. Did you find anything about its accuracy? Like, why was this abandoned? I, I didn't find much about it, other than mm. it was popular in the 20s and quickly went out of popularity. Interesting. I wonder if there was some kind of actual mechanical, you know, it just broke a lot or something. Yeah, I, I can't imagine that these were simple to maintain because yeah. anytime you've got water flowing through things and then you don't have for a while, it's going to corrode and then maybe it sticks and you can right. get stiction in the valves. And yeah, it could be it could be a pain. But now I'm wondering, could you do this with a modern, you know, so like an electronic valve and a capacitive tank level sensor? Mm-hmm. Interesting. I sense a uh, summer project in your future. Yeah, it may end up being a blog post about that. We'll see. <laughs> um, I will say that it just it it conjures images of toilets. I will say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, so as always, links in the show notes if you want to look at pictures of what we're talking about. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh. Um. Okay. So the next one that we're going to talk about um, is weighing water. Right? How much is coming down? Let's weigh it. Yeah. Why don't and- we do that? <laughs> I mean, this seems simple, right? We right? we know the density of water very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why not just put a tank on top of a scale and continually record what the scale says? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this seems totally logical. Because <laughs> um, then you don't have to worry about heavy rain, light rain. Any sort of rain is going to be weighed. It seems like that's very accurate. Oh, yeah. And the other cool thing about this is uh, it works for hail. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or any kind of frozen precipitation. Mm-hmm. Now, snow, like I said, is a different story. But yeah. if you have grapple, sleet, hail, anything like that, water still weighs the same. So if you count that towards your precipitation total, this is an easy way to do it. Yep. Um, the bad news is they're more expensive than pretty much any other, well, other than some of the types of rain gauge we'll talk about at the very end. They're more expensive than a tipping bucket rain gauge by far. Mm. Uh and they do break a lot because, well, water, electronics, spillage, all kinds of, yeah. <laughs> uh, yep. Okay, so then that takes us to our favorite, because we both have them, uh, <laughs> tipping bucket rain gauges. This is what I would call the the classic modern rain gauge. If you measure precipitation, this is probably how you're doing it. Right, exactly. And I mean, it's just what it sounds like, right? So it's... This is all enclosed, of course, and it uses this funnel that funnels down into exactly this, tipping buckets. And they're like two little buckets that are kind of on a seesaw, right? So as one fills up, and then it goes down, and the other one fills up, it goes down, and then you count how many times each of the seesaws go down, right? Yeah. So when one goes down, it dumps and resets. And generally, these output... Uh, the electronic ones, anyway, output a pulse for every hundredth of an inch of rain. Right. Uh, there were mechanical versions of this that every time the tipping bucket tipped, it actually moved a needle up on the drum recorder. Mm-hmm. So you, and- you can do this mechanically, too. The beauty of this is now we actually put uh, little magnets on the tipping buckets and have a reed switch down below, which is just a magnetically activated electronic switch. And there's no 
actual contact of the electronics with the water. Everything is sealed off, and magnets are doing the communicating of the information. Uh, which is nice for obvious reasons. Right. And there are several things that are problematic with tipping buckets. <laughs> so my favorite, I mean, this goes along with, I know we've read on the show in the past some um, really great meteorological measurements like couldn't take measurement rattlesnake in <laughs> in radar stuff like that um, <laughs> right <laughs> and this is one where okay so this is a sort of enclosed little bucket and frequently <laughs> because it's raining you'll have frogs get inside the buckets and you can't tip a frog out of a tipping bucket <laughs> <laughs> so that's one of my favorite tipping bucket rain gauge errors is frog <laughs> Yeah, well, and they they have problems when it gets cold because unless they're heated, they can freeze up right. and stop mm-hmm. working. Uh, yep. Another problem that we've had with ours significantly uh, was birds like to sit on top and poop into it. <laughs> and again, um, yeah, that sort of interferes with its actual function. I guess you could have a pigeon frequency rate or something you could calculate with that. Well, the problem with that is it actually gums up the mechanism. Ew. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> yeah. So that's a problem. But also during really heavy rains, these actually tend to under-record the amount of precipitation. So right. their their recording is rain rate dependent. Right. Because these are pretty small little buckets. And so if you have a lot coming in, it just can't keep up. And so you're tipping way less than the amount of water that's pouring into this funnel right and so these are cheap to use so that's one reason we use them they're relatively reliable another reason we use them but what they always say is that our tipping bucket rain gauge data is algorithmically corrected and this just (laughs) makes my skin crawl (laughs) um algorithmically corrected based on empirical data okay yeah. And that's always right. <laughs> so generally what happens is they expose a certain model of rain gauge to different artificial rain rates that they control, measure how it performs. As you can imagine in the real world where there's things like different wind uh, in the environment, uh, different droplet size distributions than you may have produced in the lab, it can be a different thing. Is it good enough? Probably. But there could be systematic errors, especially in certain regions, I think. Right. And, I mean, this this goes for, you say, in certain regions, because the other side is true as well. Because if you don't have a lot of rainfall, and, say, your rainfall is very sparse and it evaporates before the bucket even tips, now, technically, you've gotten a trace of rain, but it's not recorded at all. Right, and there can also be the issue of, let's say you're having intermittent light showers throughout the day. You can fill the bucket almost to where it tips, and then the rain stops, and then an hour later, another rain shower starts. The first couple drops of rain that come in tip the bucket, and all of a sudden you instantly have a hundredth of an inch. Uh, right, exactly. Yeah. So while that works for a total, it's not very good for, you know, shower by shower basis. Right. And this is what, if you have a a Davis weather station or anything like that, this is probably what you've got. Right. Right. That's definitely 
what has come in the package. I mean, ours is pretty ancient by now, but um, yeah, I have nothing else to say about that. I'm looking <laughs> at it and it's on the wall yeah. and it's actually not even on. So I'm a little <laughs> nervous about uh, what that means. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Squirrels. But, but yeah, so then now we can get into some of the fancier rain gauges that are out there. Man, I thought the tipping bucket rain gauge was fancy when I learned about it. It was pretty neat. <laughs> <laughs> so these are what I would classify as research-grade instruments. Nobody's going to have one at their house, probably. <laughs> Unless uh, you're and they're us. <laughs> too expensive. Yeah, and they're too expensive to widely distribute. Okay. And, I mean, we're talking about most of the weather service offices still use tipping bucket rain gauges, right? Oh, yeah. I know that that's what, um, you know, the Oklahoma Mesodat, these little stations weather stations that we have in all of our 77 counties you know they have heated tipping bucket rain gauges and stuff too so that's really the norm i think well and they also have a neat way to prevent wind from interfering with their measurements but that's uh another story yes yes (laughs) (laughs) we can talk about yes and and hopefully i'm well not hopefully but somebody may point out yeah our the roof is not the best place for these things i understand that i took a whole class on it (laughs) but that's where it is anyway Yeah, sometimes, especially on a house, it's hard to find ideal mounting points. Yeah, Um, it it really is. Um, But these other instruments might solve that problem if I really cared that much to shell out for them. Yeah, so one, and this seems like it's something that you could also build, uh, has a line of funnels and then uh, either a laser or infrared beam shining across the bottom of the funnel and it literally counts the drops coming off the bottom of the funnel, and you know how much a drop is when it forms and drops off the bottom of the funnel. Um, so that, I mean, begs the question of what about when you have really heavy rain rates as well? Yeah. what? <laughs> how well can you resolve different drops? Yeah, exactly. Because as we, I mean, that's one of the, when I used to go out on these experiments, um, one of the things that we would record when we're driving around in these cars with all this fancy stuff on it was the size of the raindrops. And we didn't call them that. We called them hydrometeors. Right. <laughs> because that's the pretentious way to say raindrop. <laughs> um, so, yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, does it, is that going to have any effect? Do you, you have small, medium, large? There's a big variance there. Yeah, and I would also think that this would have problem with low rain rates. Right. Right. Unless the orifice on the bottom is very small, which may be why there's multiple funnels. Maybe you have different funnels of different size orifices. Uh, once again, there wasn't a ton of information on these since they're mostly research, and I've never seen one in operation. Mm-mm. Nope. Neither have I. But I thought it was a cool idea, and mm-hmm. it one seems like one that you could build relatively easily. Yeah, that's true. It'd be interesting to see the error associated with that. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Then... Oh, I have seen one of these before. Uh, acoustic and force rain gauges. Of course you have. Is that what you get when you just hold a seismometer up in the rain? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that, that That's how you get a $20,000 doorstop. <laughs> Either way. <laughs> yeah. So uh, these actually, they're kind of like hydrophones. And okay. they record the acoustic signature of every drop hitting this plate, which on the one I saw is maybe four to six inches in diameter. And okay. from that, they can get the force of each drop hitting the plate. And from that, they can get the size. So you're actually getting a droplet size distribution 
of right, the rain so from this instrument. Even a better estimate than of actual rain amount. Yeah. And uh, it also works with hail until it beats the sensor apart. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Until it cracks it. <laughs> uh, works for small-sized hail. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, that's interesting. But again, heavy rain rates, man. How is that going to affect this? I think this is probably a little bit more impervious to heavy rain than some of the other things that we've talked about, some of the other methods. Uh, mm-hmm. Because you got to think about it, the, the speed of sound through that metal plate is fast. Yeah, that's that's probably true. That but at some point, true. there would be too much convolution from too many things hitting the plate. And yeah, I would say you would start underestimating or it would just stop reporting. I don't know <laughs> what, what <laughs> they just, actually do. Just gives up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, excellent. This, okay. this is one that I would love to get my hands on to do a comparison. Yeah, with different that'd, be, rain measurement that'd be super neat, actually. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So and then there's actually a variant on this that I've used data from. I didn't actually get to go see the instrument, but it was just outside of Norman when I was there. Uh, and it actually had multiple cameras. And the rain would fall into this box that was completely enclosed and there were lights and it would actually capture photographs as the drops fell through the box. And because it was capturing images of the drops from different angles, it reconstructed the three-dimensional shape of every drop falling through the box. Wow. And then it could do some calculus of its own. And... Yeah. So not only did you get a rate, we got a droplet size distribution. We could talk about the aspect ratio of the droplets, their fall velocity, were they pancake shaped, how pancake shaped were they? Uh, it was really incredible data. Uh, that's kind of super awesome. Yeah. Actually. I mean, when you think about knowing the volume and shape of every drop coming yeah. down, uh, yeah. that's a cloud physicist dream. <laughs> um, that is data overload for sure, I think. Yeah, I. it's like all scientific instruments, it seems like. Okay. I remember you got some the data in some weird format from it, and it had to run through some weird Windows program from the manufacturer. Of course. <laughs> to, do the, to do the image processing, and That's it took a while. That's not supported. Yeah, not supported anymore, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And all that jazz. Um, that's really interesting, and that really dovetails into research as art, because I'm sure there's a ton of really awesome pictures that probably came out of that. Yeah. Well, and and there's one more type of sensor that I, I didn't even know if I should put it in here, but... <laughs> I have I have one more, too. Oh, you do? I do. Oh, well, what's yours? <laughs> Both of us left something out of the notes oh, We this sure week. did. Um, so I got to thinking, because, you know, I've been on some of these field experiments and stuff and a lot of the times there are aircraft that fly along too and i know that there are always you know rain rate measurement associated with these aircraft and so i was just trying to look up saying you know what these aircraft sort of use um and airborne scanning radar altimeters is one way that rain rates are measured obviously not totals but you stick these on these um big hurricane hunter aircrafts and that's how they measure rain rate when they fly into hurricanes oh wow yeah and i I was never around one of those but um the the planes that flew in support of some of the vortex and sub vortex missions that i got to go on um use these little rain gauges too where they measured the 
amount of water passing between, you know, their two little instruments and they could talk about rain rate, not totals, obviously. Yeah, I know they have a similar instrument that they fly through clouds to get uh, droplet size right. distributions in clouds. It's I think it's laser-based yep. yep. on the transmit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, there's somebody at AGU every year, the company comes, and they have a humidifier that's oh. blowing water vapor up through it, and you can see it come across the screen in real time. Oh, I totally forgot about that So you just said that. You're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. That was on this super ancient aircraft that supported our uh, one of our um, high planes lightning experiment things that we went on. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. Yeah. Hmm. So what's yeah. your, your extra surprise instrument? So this uh, actually rainsensors.com, very aptly named. Uh, <laughs> it, it looks like it was designed originally for cars that have the automatic wipers. Right. Okay. Which freaks um, me out. I I disapprove of those. <laughs> I remember the first time I was in a rental car that had that. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. Um, so these are, they call it an optical rain sensor. And okay. the basic principle is it has an infrared transmitter and receiver inside and then the specially shaped dome that when water gets on the dome, it changes the refractive index uh, between the dome air interface. So more of the infrared energy gets lost. And then they can, from that, measure the rain rate. And this seems pretty awesome, actually. Yeah. And that's really about all the information that they have on their website about how the algorithm actually works to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm guessing the rest of it is secret sauce. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's called the RG11, and it's 60 bucks. I think I might pick one up uh, maybe towards the end of the summer if they get any cheaper. I'm too swamped right now to play with it. Hey, um, I saw that they do have a – if you buy three or more, it's only like $49. So if anyone else wants to go in on it, we just need one more person, and we can get a $10 discount. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh, <laughs> but it would be interesting to you know hook it up to an Arduino or something and throw it on the porch. Yeah, and... just to see. Um, I love that they sell it. It's funny because we didn't talk a lot about the errors just in the tipping bucket rain gauge, but they're selling it as, you know, it's not affected by um, no exposed conductors to corrode, no openings for bugs to crawl into, no place for leaves to collect. Yep. Yeah. Well, and they have different modes that it can operate in. So one is just to tell you it's wet, you should turn the wipers on. Uh, right. Or it's it's wet. You should close like a skylight. Uh, it also has the output option to act like a tipping bucket, so you could plug it into your Davis weather station and replace mm-hmm. your tipping bucket. Um, mm-hmm. You can. It has a, a mode called drop detection, where they say use this mode if you want to do your own external data interpretation. That's awesome. That's that's all it says. <laughs> So I don't know if that's like a pulse per drop or... Right, yeah, just counting them and you do with it what you will, I guess. Yeah, I don't know what the magic is there. Uh, it mm-hmm. would probably be possible to reverse engineer, though. And it also talks about, like, condensation sensing. Right. Um, they mention on here, which I think is super interesting, using it as irrigation control. And I, I've actually, um, through the course of talking with some students that are changing their majors to sustainability and stuff... And we were talking about how in farming now, lots of farmers are using GPS to monitor different parts of their fields. And so with us basically having a big water crisis on our hands across the globe, this is really neat. And this could be for as cheap, I mean, $60 isn't cheap, but 
it is when you're talking about, you know, an entire crop, monitoring different areas of your fields to know which one needs more rain. This is actually a pretty cool idea. Yeah, I could see there being like a, a mesh network of these across a large farm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, no, I think there's, as sensors get down cheaper and cheaper and Internet of Things, as much as people make fun of it, gets <laughs> better and better and more standardized, we're going to see a lot of really cool big data type stuff. Hopefully we get to see it before the robots take over and kill us all. Yeah, well, I mean, we won't be necessary to run the system at that point, right? Exactly. So, <laughs> but yeah, maybe we'll have to pick some of these up and report back in on them. Uh, yeah, I think this sounds really cool. Um, I definitely would like to play with one this summer. So, yeah, if you're a third person, uh, yeah, <laughs> send us that's an email. What I, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> we just need one more, man. I'm all in. So, <laughs> um, yeah, this is this is really cool, and um, it's really neat to think about because it's something that you know you hear it. Every day on the news, if it rains, there's this random measurement, but how do we arrive at that, and why do we care? Yeah. No, I think it's a good topic, Mm -hmm. and uh, hopefully maybe later this summer we'll do some more topics on how we measure different variables that you always hear. Uh, If we ever get into temperature, that's going to be a a windy show. I don't don't know if we we could keep temperature to just one show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite like scientific definition of anything is temperature, but we'll we'll get to that on another show. <laughs> yeah. Well, so now for something totally different. Uh, <laughs> we have everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay. And uh <laughs> you picked this one. It's awesome. So, <laughs> so I will I will let you introduce it. Well, I've um I guess I'll read its original title and then give you my synopsis. So it's a snapshot-based mechanism for celestial orientation, and it's by El Hundi et al. But the subtitle that I've put in is Dung Beetle Astronomers. Yeah, or Rolling Poop by Starlight. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, that's a little more poetic than mine, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this paper, obviously is looking at how dung beetles use their surroundings to move their poop. Yeah. Well, (laughs) maybe you should explain dung beetles for those not familiar with them. Okay. So dung beetles are these, I mean, I'd say rather large because most people are scared of bugs and they freak out. So, you know, like half an inch long, big black beetles, and they make little balls of poop to feed themselves and their eggs. And so what they do is they roll poop into a ball and they want to get away from the poop as quickly as the original pile, as quickly as possible, because that's kind of a dangerous area. There are other dung beetles there that are, will fight them to the death for for the dung. And so what they want to do is roll poop into a ball and then just move away straight line as quick as possible from that area. Till they get to wherever they want to stop and bury their poop. Um, and these are really cool. I mean, they're all over the place. I've seen them out in my backyard, and I have dogs, so they love it out there. Um, <laughs> but, they're, but they're really neat because if you watch them, not only do they roll the dung into a ball, but they get on top of it, and as described in the paper, they do this little dance on top of it before they start rolling it away in a straight line. And I imagine that's sort of what spurred this original research is what are they doing when they're dancing? 
Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense when you're in a dangerous situation to climb on top of your ball of poo that you made <laughs> and keep turning around. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but it turns out that there's a good reason why they do this, and it has to do with that whole straight line thing. And essentially what these researchers have found is while these dung beetles are on top, they take a snapshot of their surroundings and they use this to navigate away in a straight line. Um, there are a lot of permutations on this in this um, in this article, though, and it's really neat to see like what are they actually using to move away. I actually learned a lot about insects reading this really short paper. Yeah. Well, so they don't take a snapshot in the sense that they're capturing the image of their surroundings they're actually just recording the orientation of well in our case the sun right some stimuli out there um right and so you know i mean if they do this at night it could be like the milky way some stimuli and so how the scientist tested this was actually really cool because i guess this sort of mechanism is used by all sort of pathfinding insects. So ants and things like this use all kinds of these clues that we don't even think about to orient themselves. And so the researchers set up this dome, so a fake, totally fake sky, right? And then they put a sun, which was approximated by a green light, and then a polarized light as well. And so there are a lot of permutations between this green UV light and the polarized light to try to determine whether these dung beetles were actually seeing, you know, a sun and then understanding the way that the polariz polarization of the rays changes and using that to navigate or if it really was just, okay, I see this ball of light over here. I'm going to go towards that bright thing. Yeah, and so like you said, they did a lot of we're going to put things at 90 degrees apart, 180 degrees apart. We're going to turn both of them on, then turn one off when they start moving. All of these things, because some insects actually do like a matched filter where they can combine multiple sources of information to get their best estimate of direction. And it turns out dung beetles pick one source and stick with it. Right. They, they don't use this more complicated matched filter design. Um, but they don't care, this is what I thought was very interesting, if the scenario is real at all. Like, they could have the polarization direction be 90 degrees to what it should be, or they could have the light and the polarization coming from completely the wrong angles to represent real sunlight, and the dung beetles got up, did their little dance, and were fine. They just had to take the snapshot. They didn't care what information was in it. Right, exactly. So they talk about bees don't do this. Like, bees know very clearly, sort of, if you give them a sun direction they know what the anti-sun direction is and can navigate sort of on this compass. And so that's why these dung beetles are described more as taking a snapshot. Like they're not using these, the actual more intricate um, clues, you know, between these two different sources, like how they interact. They don't care about that. It's just this one time sort of click, I got this. I'm going to go towards that ball as opposed to the different polarizations and how it changes away from, you know, the light source. So that was, that was really interesting too, I thought. Yeah. Well, and I love some of the figures in here where they <laughs> show like a, a radial distribution of where the dung beetles ended up with their dung ball. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, <laughs> it, it reminded me of like Windrose plots. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought about too. <laughs> yeah. Or um, or Paleo Current or something. Yeah, anything like that where you're showing a distribution of azimuthal information. Mm-hmm. Uh, Except there's a big beetle with a pile of dung pictured in the middle of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I thought this was cool because when I first saw it, um, and we'll link the, the sort of um, the Cliff's Notes version of it, which it was in the Washington Post. Um, this actually won an Ig Nobel Prize too um i thought it was interesting because i thought wow this is going to be really intense and these beetles use all this very intricate interaction between the celestial landscape to to navigate but they don't at all yeah so So, i guess it's surprising how much information they throw out but it works yeah yeah right exactly because what they want to do is get in a straight line as opposed to say bees or ants who are actually trying to give each other signals you know where to find this awesome flower or whatever they're trying to find so those insects need you know very directionally specific information whereas dung beetles need the directionally specific in terms of straight line that's all they care about so they're not more complex than that because they don't need to be yeah well and i I loved reading the description of the experimental setup yeah in here like th- this uh round arena with a tent over it and a camera in it and all of these different light sources in different places and an incredible amount of thought and funding into figuring this out uh yes yep yep i thought it was really interesting um i had a really great picture in my mind of just all these little tents of dung beetles doing their thing mm-hmm but it was very statistically thorough, I thought, too, which was kind of a cool thing to read about um, because they did, just like you said before, you know, they did all kinds of sun here, you know, polarized light here, 90 degrees off of that, you know, 180 degrees off of that to see sort of whether they cared or not. And they don't care if it's fake at all. They still do their thing. Yeah. So. Well, I think this was a pretty good find. <laughs> I'm going to have to work to top this one next week. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) But, well, if you have an idea for a fun paper, which we've got a couple that are queued up now from listeners, uh, you should send that to us or any comments on the show, any uh, observations from your rain gauge or pictures of your gauging station, if you happen to have one, (laughs) uh, you should send those in to us. And it's been a while since we had an audio comment. So if you'd like to send one of those, just... uh, Open the Voice Memos app on your phone and record whatever you have to say to us. Shoot us an email with it, and we'll be happy to play it on the show. So if you have any of that, Shannon, how can they send it to us? Uh, Well, you can send us your order for that optical rain gauge show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Also, we're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. I am at Shannon Doolin, and John is at geo underscore Lehman. And until next week, remember... Don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or firms.